the roller coaster of emotions that come your way uh, within the same day you can have a super high high and a super low low but even during those times you have to have the will to keep happy face and keep inspiring your team and keep motivating your team regardless of what you are going through personally at any given point in time there are many decisions to be taken many questions to be answered many problems to be solved and we tend to do that as a group regardless of which area that is you can't do just one thing and do one thing very well you have to do many things well hi i'm amanda kuwa and this is one more scoop here we're sitting down with southeast asia's top founders executives and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes Today, I'm speaking with Vamsi Krishna. He's the co-founder and chief product officer at Multiplier, a global employment platform that allows businesses to employ compliantly in markets where a legal entity has not been established. Basically, they help companies hire talent from all over the world, even if they don't have a legal entity there. Vamsi leads product development at the startup, making sure that the infrastructure, platforms, and automation processes stay reliable and effective at all times. I am super excited to share this chat I had with Vamsi, but I just want to mention that we had a little issue with the audio quality for this episode. But I promise that the quality of the conversation is going to make it well worth a listen. Hi, Ramzi. So nice to meet you today after all this time seeing you on my LinkedIn page and seeing all the news on Multiplier. Hi, Amanda. Nice to meet you too. Excited to be here. I know everybody probably knows what Multiplier is because it's after the intro of the podcast. But I'd love to hear it in your words. In maybe less than a minute, in the simplest words you can, how would you explain what Multiplier is? Multiplier is essentially a global employment platform. So we make international hiring and employment and onboarding and payroll super seamless and easy. So the best analogy that I can provide is like we are to the employment industry as Uber is to the taxi industry. So we take out all the complexity and provide a very simple UI for handling international compliance, labor laws, taxes, employment contracts, entity establishment, etc., etc. Our mission is to really help create a world without limits and really provide the freedom for any company to hire anyone they want who is best fit for that role, regardless of where they are located at at the moment. And at the same time, open up opportunities to anyone, no matter where they are born and where they are located at, and for them to have equal opportunity as the rest of the world. And could we hear a bit more about you? What was your childhood like and where did you grow up? So my name is Vamsi, like you mentioned already. I come from a small town in South India near Hyderabad. I think some people know that as the land of biryani. <laughs> we have some really good biryanis there. I come from uh, remote outskirts of that city. So I have always been into technology. So I did my computer science at IIT Mumbai and then immediately moved to Singapore for my first job. I have largely been in technology roles all my life. Worked as a software engineer, mobile developer, product manager, etc. across big companies. My first job was with a Japanese ERP company and then moved into working in startups. And then me, Sagar and Amrit, we decided to launch Multiplier. And I have been doing this for the last three years or so. 
And what was your childhood like? You said you sort of lived in a remote area. So what were the things that you were really into as a kid? And what were your biggest influences growing up? It was a great childhood. I had a lot of fun. I was a backbencher. <laughs> I never used to attend classes. I always used to sneak out with my friends to play sports or just hang out. So it was a very small community of about 200, 300 or so families who were living in that area where I grew up in. So it was a very tightly knit community. Everybody knew each other. So it was a very nice locality to grow up in. We used to always be outdoors. I mean, obviously, we didn't have any mobile phones, smartphones back in the day for us to distract ourselves with. <laughs> so we usually used to be super outdoors all the time, either playing sports or, or just hanging out and, and stuff like that. I moved out of my home when I was 14 and then started going to boarding school. And that was a totally different experience altogether. That was a great experience too. Learned a lot and uh, learned to start living by myself outside of home. Even though it was difficult in the beginning, but I really did not miss home <laughs> once I started going to boarding school. Why do you think you didn't miss home when you started going to boarding school? Was it easier to um, sneak out and play sports because it was not a small, tight-knit community where they would see you <laughs> sneaking out? Yeah, I mean, uh, see, the first place I grew up in, it was a very small community and I couldn't really see much of the outside world in a way. And then when I went to boarding school, you know, it was a bigger city, do all sorts of things like go to the movies, hang out in nice restaurants and stuff like that. So it was just like everything opened up and I really loved the freedom that I can do whatever I want without my parents sort of like breathing down when I can do this, do that, etc. So I think at that age, getting that much of freedom, that was really fun. Oh, that's true. Like you can just do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about what someone will say after you do it, or you don't have to consider uh, their thoughts and opinions. <laughs> or maybe it's risky <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> it develops your decision making. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wasn't too much into rule breaking though, maybe in the initial days, but at a later point on, I wasn't too much into rule breaking or anything. So it definitely wasn't because of that, that I wanted to move out of my home. Uh, I think in general, I love the freedom to be able to do whatever I want. And I'm curious about like when you went to boarding school, what was it like? Was it a very, very competitive place or was it a kind of environment that was very collaborative or what was it like in boarding school at 14? I think uh, you may already know this, but in India, schools are mostly competitive. It's hyper competitive, actually. Rigorous classes, lots of things to read, lot, lot of tests. And it's always stack ranked, right? So we don't have grading systems. We have stack ranks. So it's oh, like wow. one class that two. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I think slowly some of the schools are adopting more Western style of grading. But when I was in boarding school, almost every school that I knew, they always had a stack ranking method for everyone in the school. So it was a hyper competitive environment like that. But at the same time, like it was so, super fun as well. People do collaborate. You form small groups of friends and you try to collaborate as much as you can. And there's always one or two people in the group who are kind of like the teacher's pet, who know everything. So you just was need to go you? and talk. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me. I was one of the people who were going to these teacher's pets and trying to learn things before the exam, one night before the exam. <laughs> Got it. And then, so you said that you were a backbencher when you were in your hometown, but when you went to boarding school, was that the same? Or were you sort of forced to excel because it was very hyper-competitive? <laughs> I was forced to perform, <laughs> for sure. It was not as easy as my pre-boarding school experience. Although I did have fun with a lot of subjects, so it wasn't like I was doing a lot of hard work or anything. 
I used to score good in subjects I liked and I used to not do so well in the subjects I didn't like. But, you know, overall, it used to get adjusted. Although I'm not like I wasn't ranking in one, two kind of places, but I did okay for myself. But you're right. That was one of the places which started to trigger some of this. Like you have to do well. You have to perform that sort of a mindset. Well, I mean, when you mentioned that you're a backbencher, I was like, how does a backbencher get into IIT Bombay? (laughs) I think there's something that happened in between. And I guess this is the answer. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, uh, I think it's, uh, I attribute that to, uh, obviously, my parents really were influential in that decision to like even try to attempt the joint entrance exam. Um, But at the same time, I was also lucky to be part of a group of friends that I had where everyone wanted to go to IIT. Uh, so I naturally thought, oh, maybe this is something very cool. Uh, and I have to also try and get in. Uh, I mean, you don't really know many things about the world at that age. So you kind of like go with the flow, go with whatever your friends are doing. I think I was quite lucky enough to be placed in that group of friends who are where for some reason, like all of them wanted to score well in that exam and go to an IIT. So I naturally just tagged along with them and started training with them. And uh, well, luck is also very important, I would say. Uh, luck did play a part. I don't want to attribute everything to what I did. But at the same time, I think who you spend your time with is very important. And I was quite lucky to have a good group of friends uh, at that time who helped me. Yeah. Well, they do say, like, you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time yes. with. And that's, um, that's how it came into oh, play. <laughs> that is so true. Ever since then, I have always tried to live by that. And then always be in a group of people where I am the least smartest person in the room. And then so when you uh, went to university, I heard that it's super competitive there. So did you feel feel the difference of going to boarding school, feeling the more competitive environment, and then going into university? And as you said, it wasn't your biggest ambition, but you wanted to go because you're your friends. So when you got to university, did you feel really pressured or how did the environment feel like for you? You know, IITs are a really special place. Like they get the brightest minds of from all over India and put them all together in a single place and let them go at it with each other, inspire each other, build things, learn from each other. So honestly, even though it was a competitive environment, the people that you spend your time with are so inspirational that you are just like amazed every time you're in a room with some of them, with the kind of ideas they have, with the kind of skill sets they have. Some of them are so smart that they could be the scientists of this generation. And you need to, like, I was incredibly lucky to be part of that kind of a group of people. It was intimidating for sure, right? I'm not going to (laughs) lie. But at the same time, the kind of things I learned in the four years I spent in IIT, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. It was a great learning curve for me personally. A lot of avenues opened up both personally and professionally for myself too. So all in all, it was a great time for four years. Then after you graduated, as you said, your first job was in Singapore. Was that always the plan? Did you always want to work overseas right after university? No, I think it just kind of happened. I had multiple different job offers, a couple of them in the US and some in India and in Singapore. I can't remember exactly what my rationale was back in the day, but I thought moving to Singapore may be the right call for me. So I ended up selecting that offer. I did want to spend some time overseas working just to experience how it was like, but it wasn't that I did not want to work in India. I didn't have many strong opinions back in the day of where I want to work and what I want to do. I was kind of like going with the flow. For some reason, I thought I should try how Singapore is like and 
I wanted to also be in an ecosystem where it's still growing. It's not fully matured. Like take the US, for example. US has no lack of talent. So it's already a very mature ecosystem. But Southeast Asia, from a technology standpoint, was still up and coming back in the day. It was growing rapidly. So I thought maybe I should take that opportunity to try and experience that growth. And then your first job, having that sort of international experience from your first job, what do you think you learned from that? And would you recommend that to most people? You know, first job, leave your country, go overseas. And in two different countries at that, Singapore and Japan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, uh, I would definitely recommend everyone to experience working in multiple cultures possibly in multiple countries as well. When you spend 21, 22 years of your life in a single country in in the same kind of culture, it's always good to open up your perspective on how people do things differently in other parts of the world. And why is that so? It just makes you a more balanced person, I think, as a human being, and sort of makes you more open-minded too, that you can't really judge anyone based based on anything. There's a reason for why people do certain things the way they do. So I think... From that standpoint, it was quite a shock for me when I first moved out of the country. That was the first time ever I left my country for my job. I hadn't traveled internationally before then. The first few days was quite a shock for me to adjust and learn and not make any mistakes, try to make some friends. It was a great adventure. Although I do wish I had worked in India for a couple of years at least before I moved overseas. I I don't really regret making that decision and I do recommend that to everybody as well. What was it like working in Singapore versus Japan, were there huge differences? And was it oh, difficult yeah. to get maybe permits back then? Or was it all taken care of by the company? Oh my God, massive differences. Like Japan is a fascinating place. It's extremely different from some of the westernized cultures that you tend to see in Singapore as well. And it's also quite different from how it is like in India. Although I didn't spend a lot of time working in Japan, maybe a couple of months, I think about three months or so. I was largely for training and learning. But I did get to experience their working culture quite closely. I find the working culture in Japan to be very performance driven or hard work driven rather and loyalty driven compared to other parts of the world where you're encouraged to sort of like skip jobs to be able to learn faster. You're encouraged to hop jobs after a few years to sort of like take up a new role and stuff like that. But in Japan, it's kind of like the opposite. You're taught to be loyal with the company. There is reasons for that. And the kind of hard work they do. And after work, they also party hard. Japan has some of the most happening nightlife events in Asia, actually. They work super hard in the office all day. And by the time you leave the office, you can't even recognize that they are the same people who you've worked with so far. Because their entire personality changes just like that. (laughs) Funny that like a bunch of people on the podcast have worked in Japan. And they've also shared their experiences. (laughs) I'm not sure why. I think you're the third or fourth guest out of maybe almost 30. I think that's a pretty high number. <laughs> maybe <laughs> a lot of good people end up working in Japan. <laughs> yeah, I would love to go back and work for some more time there. I do miss it. It's been about eight years since I was there. So after working in Singapore and Japan for the company, which I think is definitely more of a traditional company, though you did some more you know, digital work, you built some new products. It's still very different from a startup. What made you want to join Funding Society, a startup? And it was definitely much earlier at the time compared to now. Definitely. It was a young startup at the time I joined. Probably about 20 to 30 headcount. I was fortunate to be a part of their journey to growing to more than 400, 500 employees in a span of three years. Like almost 
uh, growing a hundred times in terms of their loan book and revenue, expanding to multiple other countries. Like, you know, I, I was quite fortunate to be able to experience all of these uh, things at funding societies. One of the reasons why I made the decision is like, I have always wanted to work in startups. I really like the level of ownership that founders and early employees of a startup have tend to have and how much they go above and beyond to help the company. And that's something I really resonated with as a person. I also don't like being pigeonholed in a certain role. So when you work in big corporates, that ends up happening eventually, where you have to handle a small part of a very large puzzle. And that's the only thing you can handle. But if you have that entrepreneurial spirit and you have that mindset of like, breaking things apart and putting them back together for the better. And you want to be able to do that. I think startups are the right place to work. And that's one of the reasons why I made the call. And um, I always wanted to start something, uh, anything. Uh, It could be something small as well since I was in university. And I thought maybe I should at least work at startups first to understand what it's like. And then why funding societies? I'm sure you had your options beyond just funding societies and maybe even beyond how these agents signed up. Maybe you had some options in India. So what made you pick that company specifically? Actually, you know what? Like that was more than five years ago. And at that time, there were not many options in Singapore in terms of startups. It was still a very small ecosystem. Either there were many, many garage startups who hadn't even gotten to a certain stage yet. Or then you have a couple of other options like either Grab or some of the other bigger tech companies. That time, Grab was already quite big. So the pool was quite limited, to be honest. And among all the all the people I met, I really liked the founders at Funding Societies and the kind of mission and the kind of clarity of mission they had and what they wanted to do for the region. So that was what helped me make that call. The founders and the leadership who I worked with in Funding Societies, all of them had real clear sense of purpose on why they're doing what they're doing. And I thought that that was one of the primary decision points. And then moving on to where you are now in Multiplier, how did you join the company and decide to co-found it. Did you know your co-founders in university? I noticed that you guys have, I think, similar or the same years in the same university. <laughs> Maybe you're all friends from way back then. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I knew Sagar from my IIT Bombay days. He is uh, my partner in crime in uh, sports at the university. We bonded while we were both playing for the same team for volleyball competitions. And uh, we played quite competitively. And then obviously, we we met in Singapore. After that, we lived for a few years, shared an apartment. And then we were both working in startups at that time. And we always wanted to do something together since back in the day. Both of us were in a position, this was during peak COVID. Uh, Both of us were in a position where both of us wanted to do something. Then we got together and then we also had Amrit. Amrit is a mutual friend. And uh, we all three of us were in a same boat in a way in terms of wanting to do something different. So then we sort of like decided. And then Sagar, he had this problem that he faced in working in his previous company. Then he came up with this particular idea. And then once we looked into it, me and Amrit and Sagar, we started talking to people. We started talking to various other companies in Singapore. We realized that this problem is quite massive and almost everybody has it and it's not being solved. So that kind of excited us to sort of pursue this as a full-time opportunity. And then when you were starting it out, what were the things that you usually did in the company? Like, I know that the label co-founder and CPO, but in the early days, what did your work look like? Maybe in the first one year, 
some of the more interesting things that you did that maybe other people wouldn't expect you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> the first one year of a start of any startup is the toughest because you have to wear multiple hats and every problem is your problem you don't have a big team to rely on to be able to get things done so in the first year or so the three of us we shared responsibilities with each other but everybody ended up doing like many things sometimes things which are not even our area of expertise like you know amrit was running payroll for example he never ran payroll in his entire life he was running payroll for our employees and paying them salaries right uh, like how an hr or payroll person would do but it was a super fulfilling time because when you do all of that for something you can call your own i think uh, that's quite fulfilling in it, in and of itself even though it was like kind of long hours we were working the kind of stress eating lack of sleep for the entire year it was still like we had so much fun working on that even though it was sort of like uh, very peak covid and there was a minimum gathering of five people or so the three of us always used to like physically meet up at a certain either at a shared office space or at one of our homes and uh, quickly huddle make decisions move on it was a very fulfilling but stressful and long one year for the first yeah would you say there was a year that was the most fun or do you think it gets more fun over time for you i think it keeps changing although the kind of fun and fulfillment is still the same after all this time as well but the kind of problems that you face change quite dramatically over time so in the beginning you have a lot of these zero to one problems where nothing is even set up and everything needs to be set up from scratch but as you go further as your team grows then you go into solving for scaling challenges you go into solving for revenue goals new products people management and hiring and culture building and all of these things so there are different kinds of problems from what you do in your first year but equally challenging i would say and sometimes even more challenging than before but i would also say equally fun it's been 3 and 1/2 years i think for us but it doesn't feel like that it feels like time has passed so fast that it still feels like we just met each other from the early days versus now what are the biggest lessons that you've learned in maybe in product other people who are founders or other cpos to learn from there are a lot of learnings i hadn't worked on this kind of product before so it was all pretty new i really got to understand how a day in a life of a hr expert or a payroll specialist or a hiring talent acquisition person how a day in the life looks like for them what are their challenges what will they treat as a first priority what kind of problems they expect you to solve for them so it was a great learning for me personally in understanding the whole industry and the kind of challenges that multiplier can potentially solve for the entire hr department of any company and building products is obviously very very linked to who you are building it for so you can't build for everyone in the same manner so building for hr basically means that you can't do just one thing and do one thing very well you have to do many things well and that sort of like is some thing that has to be unlearned and relearned for me where in my previous roles or the mindset has always been like take something and focus on it and do it very very well and then move to the next thing but when it comes to like building uh, for hr teams you have to do many things and well you have to do them well can't say i only have this and you have to wait 6 more months for the other feature that's not going to work out it's also challenging but the thing is if you think about it from a technology standpoint HR technology hasn't evolved as much as some of the other domains like say e-commerce or payments or ride hailing etc like uh, HR and payroll industry has 
still been lagging behind in terms of technology adoption. So the opportunity and the challenges that can be solved and the problems that can be solved is much larger than any of the other industry that I've seen. And that that sort of is super motivating. And from your experience, especially in your case where you have to build many things, how do you think about when do you launch a new feature? When is the best time? Or when do you put more focus on another feature or another product? How would people who are maybe building product for the first time for their startup think about that? Or maybe they have their MVP or first product and are thinking about the next one. Right. I think the definition of an MVP is also changing. I think with everyone having access to smartphones and almost running their day-to-day on digital technology, their appetite for adopting something very raw and basic has gone down compared to like, say, early 2000s or until 2010, etc. So the definition of an MVP has changed in the recent past few years, I would say. You can have a toned down version of your final product, but I think there is some level of delight and uh, functionality that users expect you to have and people expect you to provide before they even consider trying it out. So it's no longer, you know, I, I don't really now believe in the phrase that I used to believe before is that if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you're doing something wrong. I think maybe specific to multiplier, we don't really believe that's true. We can't really be putting something out there which doesn't solve a few problems properly. So we always listen to our users. Before we do anything, push anything out or decide to build something, it's extremely user-driven decision-making. So we talk, everyone in the company talks to customers all the time to get feedback. Anytime we see one of the support tickets coming in where a customer is not satisfied, someone or the other will pick up their phone, talk to them for 15, 20 minutes to gather more information, share it back with the team for us to be able to figure out what to do. I think it's very important to always be very, very close to your customers and users no matter how big you become. I think that's one of the best ways to sort of build really amazing products. And the team at Multiplier, like we are quite lucky to have some of the uh, best and most customer focused teams that we have built so far. I have rarely seen any decision or uh, product opportunity that was taken without serious input from our users who are already with us. That's something I think we do very well. I think that's an interesting point. I think maybe another reason is that there's much more competition now that if you have a super bare bones product, you won't make it very far. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, because they have always have alternatives. There are always things that they can do in a different manner. So you have to be really good at even your first version of your launch. And like when you're thinking about new products and new features, how do you think about prioritizing them or deciding which one to do first or put more focus on first? Because as you said, you have to really continually read multiple features and be good at them. I think a very good question. We believe in frameworks, but not to a point where we just follow them to a dot. You know, it's uh, product decision making, uh, prioritization is such a fluid thing that at this stage, you can't really plan like one year ahead and exactly what you are going to do in what order and just stick with it. Because like you just mentioned, right, there's so many platforms out there who offer either the same or a similar service or an offering. And the market is changing so rapidly. You can't really have really thought through exactly what your product is going to look like or do one year down the line. So when it comes to prioritization, although we do some of the usual prioritization exercises that every product team in every company does in whatever framework that works for them, 
the one thing we do differently is that we never set things in stone. We have a very clear idea of what the industry needs. But how we get there is something that we are extremely flexible on. So even some of our quarterly plans, if there is something new that we learned from the market, we are very okay to change that and do things all over. So I think there are many frameworks out there that you can use on prioritizations. I'm not going to even talk more about that. They can always read that up. But the one thing to keep in mind is that they are just frameworks and you have to be willing to really be very, very flexible in adjusting your roadmap as and when you learn new things. I think an interesting thing I'd love to know from you is like, I guess for example, for example, my context, it was only this year when I started hiring team members for myself. Also this year when I started to handle multiple clients. So I think I'm starting to see really the difference of what is it like to work um, in the very, very early stages. And then when things are starting to move a bit more and the company is starting to grow and realizing a lot of the way that I used to work before has to change. So what kinds of changes have you made at work that have improved your personal productivity or the productivity of the team under you? What sort of changes were they and why were they impactful? It's been a kind of like hyper growth for us for the last one, two years. We added almost 300 new employees within the last 18 months or so. And obviously, we had to really adapt and change quickly in how we do things. I think in the early stages, it's quite natural for the founders to have like a very tight grip on everything that happens at a company. But as the company grows, you have to be able to delegate and trust certain teams to handle certain things without your involvement at all. Now, that's a very big adjustment, but it needs to happen for you to be able to scale well. I'm still learning how to do it in all candor. So even though I am involved or the founders are involved with almost every decision that is being taken at the company, we don't control it or we don't say that you have to take explicit written approval with every single decision that you're making. But what we try to do is provide as much context as possible and keep repeating it over and over and over until people really get it, right? It could be context from a market standpoint. It could be from a culture standpoint. It could be from a priority standpoint. It could be from a competition standpoint. But when you have a remote and distributed team uh, spread across in 25 different countries, for you to be able to communicate and spread the same message in the exact same way to everyone in the company fully remotely, like uh, that's very, very difficult. I'm sure you would appreciate how much that gets lost in translation. And it's uh, very tricky to make sure that the message is delivered to everyone in the exact same way that that is right. So we spend a lot of time in that context setting, basically. So we do a lot of calls. We repeat ourselves all the time. The same message, we write it, we send it across, we broadcast it, we discuss it in our town halls, we discuss it in our OKR meetings everywhere. I think if the context setting part is done well, you can slowly start seeing decentralized decision making happen. What are the toughest lessons that you've learned in the process of building multiplier based on any mistakes that you've made or just any observations that you've made? Some of the learnings I would say would be I think you are only as good as the team you hire. I think many people sort of underestimate that skill set of being able to hire the right people for your organization, especially during the early stages. I wish I had learned how to hire much earlier than going through a bit of trial and error phase at a later point in time. So I think that's one advantage with disproportionate returns, where if you are able to inspire and hire the right talent, 
and be able to keep away the wrong talent away without having to go through the phase of like hiring and then realizing and then replacing. That saves a lot of time, saves a lot of energy. It keeps you moving in the right direction all the time. So you don't have to keep pivoting and pivoting. I think that's one very massive learning at Multiplier is that once you start scaling, you're only as strong as the team that you have. And then I'd love to know, like, I think being a founder is always glamorized everywhere, especially with rounds as big as yours in Southeast Asia. So I'm curious, what's the biggest sacrifice that you've made building Multiplier? Personal sacrifice, if there is any. I think it is a little overly glamorized. I can say with 100% confidence that this is the toughest thing I have ever done so far. The biggest compromise, well, I mean, there are usual compromises that you have to make in terms of like take personal life. Like you have very little time outside of work to do things that you enjoy, but that's something everybody has to be prepared to give up. But I would say one of the hardest things is to be able to handle the roller coaster of emotions that come your way. Uh, Within the same day, you can have a super high high and a super low low. But even during those times, you have to have the will to keep happy face and keep inspiring your team and keep motivating your team, regardless of what you are going through personally, what kind of emotion that you are currently going through. That's, I think, is one of the most difficult things to do. Yeah, that's something that gets rarely talked about as well. How have you sort of learned how to handle that better? I mean, nobody really talks about you know, personal emotion regulation or how to manage your emotions, whether the cause of that is inside or outside of work. Is it just something that you learned over time or is that something you really deliberately try to learn? I think it's almost like it never becomes a habit, to be honest. You have to keep doing it day in, day out, day in, day out. It does help to have like a great circle of trust. Like for me, my co-founders, Sagar and Amrit, and we talk about everything. We share everything with each other and they are a great support pillar for me and for each other. So it always helps to have that circle of trust to be able to talk things through and get back on track. But the thing is, yeah, like I said, you can't really learn it and then it becomes a habit. It doesn't really work like that. You have to be very conscious that you have to do it. You have to always keep that long-term mission in mind and just keep doing it day in and day out. I think that's the only way. And then I saw on your Twitter account that it says you love fiction, travel, and sports. Is that something that you've always <laughs> loved since you were a kid? Oh, yeah, definitely. I still do. Whenever I get some free time, I, I love either reading, although I don't really read much these days or watch any fiction. So I have always spent a lot of time, even when I was in boarding school and stuff like that, where I spent a lot of time reading uh, fiction novels, for example. It's a favorite pastime of mine. And then what sports do you do? Do all of you co-founders like sports or? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we do. Every Tuesday, me, Sagar and Amrit go try to play badminton. Oh, okay. We really enjoy that. Uh, it's a great exercise as well. And you have to always stay fit uh, to have a clear mind, right? So sports is a great way to do that. So we do love sports. I love badminton. I love tennis. I love volleyball. I mean, unfortunately, don't really get the time to play as much as I want to. But whenever I get a chance, I sneak in a session of either a badminton or a tennis or something like that. I think that's actually pretty interesting. So you guys bond over badminton weekly. But when you're at the company, how often do you interact? Do you meet as co-founders pretty often? Is it usually on one day? How is it like in terms of the evolving maybe co-founder relationship you guys have had now versus then? We huddle quite often with each other because at any given point in time, there are many decisions to be taken, many questions to be answered, many problems to be solved. And we tend to do that as a group, regardless of 
which area that is. So we talk to each other quite often, often multiple times during the same day. And so many group calls, so many meetings. Amrit is also relocating to the US in a few days. So now we'll have to figure out a way to keep in touch with the time zone difference and whatnot. It was so far easy to do because all three of us are based out of Singapore. So it was always easy to kind of like meet up and huddle. We meet up almost on a daily basis in person. I guess you guys can't do virtual badminton now though. <laughs> I wonder what the closest thing would be. Buy a PlayStation, I guess. <laughs> Perhaps. So you also like fiction, right? So you mentioned that you used to read a lot and not so much now, but what kind of fiction do you like? All kinds. Um, I really love thriller, fantasy. So I spent a lot of time reading the Game of Thrones books, A Song of Ice and Fire, even though they are massive, massive. Each edition is a massive book and I still haven't gotten far. But that's just one example of the kind of things I like. I really like Sidney Sheldon. Very, very good books. But like I said, right, unfortunately, I don't get the time to read so much these days because you need a lot of time to be able to finish a full book. So I now rely on Netflix for my fiction consumption needs. And as for travel, do you like traveling internationally or do you actually like local travel more? And when you're on a trip, what's your ideal sort of vacation or travel? More internationally, I have spent a lot of time in Singapore. I've, I've been here almost 10 years, so I don't really do a lot of domestic. I don't really visit a lot of places in Singapore at the moment. But I do like traveling internationally, visiting new cities. I don't honestly have a ideal vacation place. I think every place has something to offer. I do like just taking off to a new place. And even if I'm not doing anything, I just like see uh, sightseeing or city walking. Uh, that's still okay. But it just gives a very good jolt to the brain being in a completely new place. I think it opens up your perspective and gets you out of your daily routine and probably sometimes can actually spark some creativity. So that's why I like traveling. What is your favorite destination so far? <laughs> very difficult to answer that question because it keeps changing. The last long vacation I was in, uh, I was in Turkey. I really had a great time there. Amazing food, amazing people. I was in Cappadocia and Istanbul. I would definitely love, love to visit again. Bali is definitely always there. It's a good place to visit anytime. You don't really have to plan much for Bali. So some cities in Europe, especially Germany, is always one of my favorites. And I think to close, I'll ask you one question that I've asked everybody on the podcast. And I think you probably know this question. Outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life and on the timeline, it could be anything. You could achieve it in five months, five years, or 50 years. <laughs> uh, strictly outside of work. Strictly outside of work. I would love to direct a movie if I get a chance ever in my life. I have always dreamt of doing that uh, since I was a kid. So let's see, fingers crossed. What kind of movie? Any movie or? Any movie, something in fiction, probably a crime or a thriller kind of movie. That would be great. Would you have like an inspiration for a kind of movie that you'd want to direct so we can have a advanced look <laughs> into the kind of movie <laughs> you'd possibly create in the future if we haven't already watched it? <laughs> I, I really like the work of Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan. Every time I watch one of their movies, it sparks that motivation again. So maybe, you know, something which is a mix of both. Okay, well, thank you so much for the honest answer. I will be looking forward to your future movie. 
And I guess everyone on the podcast will keep you accountable to doing it sometime in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the added pressure. (laughs) Well, so nice to meet you here and finally get to hear more of your story. And thank you again for making the time. Thanks so much, Amanda. Super nice to be here.